dedicating talk, news, and music programming to nearly 3,000 radio stations nationwide, plus Channel 131 on Sirius XM Radio. Our hosts include Mike Gallagher, Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager, Larry Elder, Sebastian Gorka, and Eric Metaxas. Salem has over 1,600 employees across the nation. For more information on what this emerging growth company is all about, visit our website at SalemMedia.com. Thank you for calling Salem Media Group. Learn more about our company at SalemMedia.com. As we direct your call, allow us to tell you a little bit more about Salem, the leading multimedia company serving America's Christian and conservative communities with multiple media properties in radio and digital media. Still there? Yeah, it looks like I finally got connected. Okay, you want to just go ahead and jump on the This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. This evening is the beginning of what is known as Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the final of the seven feasts of the Lord set forth in Leviticus chapter 23 and refers not just to what the Jewish people were to keep during their walk through the wilderness and thereafter, but also was foretelling of the most joyous, happy, fulfilling, blessed time of all history. That's why it's called the most joyous feast of the Lord there in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. It's the most prominent feast mentioned more often in the Bible than any of the other feasts. You begin in the fall feast with the Feast of Trumpets, which is the blowing of the trumpet, that is the blowing of the shofar, which is the call to repentance, the call to judgment. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is. Then, ten days later, you have... Yom Kippur, and the time in between trumpets and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is called the Days of Awe. You won't find that term actually in the Bible, but indeed it is. They are Days of Awe because the Jewish people realize that if they do not respond to the shofar calling the people to repentance, they will not be prepared to be written in the Book of Life on the Day of Atonement, and therefore will not be included in the Book of Life, and that is not a pretty picture. So the question that we would have today, since most of us here are not Jews, is are we written in the Book of Life, and are we going to be written in the Book of Life? Are we walking in a state of repentance and holiness and righteousness before God? That's the question. Then, five days later, comes the Feast of Tabernacles after uh, the uh, Feast of, uh, well, at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a very 
very big deal. It is also called the Feast of Booths, and that's because the Jewish people were to prepare uh, temporary kinds of booths to commemorate, celebrate, commemorate their walking with God and God's walking with them through the wilderness uh, when they did not have a temple and God had given them a tabernacle uh, as constructed by Moses where he demonstrated his presence during the walk through 40 days of testing in the wilderness. So because of the joy associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, concluding the seven feasts of the Lord, it became the most prominent of Israel's holidays, and three times during the year, all Jewish males were required to appear before the Lord in the temple. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, that is the uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So these were known as the pilgrim feast because they required pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So in the days of the temple, when there was a temple there in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles was seen, looked at with great awe. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles that Solomon actually dedicated the newly built temple to the Lord. And that ancient observance of tabernacles, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, descended from heaven to light the fire on the altar and fill the Holy of Holies. Big deal. Very big deal. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles, as you can see, occurs in Israel's change of seasons, just like with ours, marks the beginning of the winter rainy season. So uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is also in Israel associated with rain. That's right, rain, an important part of tabernacle's observance. So in the days of the temple, when the temple was still there, the Jewish pilgrims would flock to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now they flock to the western wall there, the only remaining vestige of the temple uh, after the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D. So at sundown... The blast of the shofar from the temple announced the arrival of this holiday, the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, or Tabernacles. So everything was very exciting. And the people, the Jewish people, to this day, prepare booths. And you might see these little booths around. Uh, There are some in in America who prepare these booths uh, as part of obedience to Leviticus chapter 23 and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a a very intense anticipation of rain that was reflected in the temple services. And uh, they called it the water libation. A sacrificial pouring out of a liquid was offered to the Lord as a visual prayer for rain. So a high priest carried a golden pitcher, and he carefully dipped the pitcher into the pool of Siloam and brought it back to the Temple Mount. And the high priest, with the water from the pool of Siloam, reached the southern gate of the temple, known as the Water Gate, because of this ceremony, and he entered three blasts of the silver trumpets that sounded from the temple, and the priest, with one voice, repeated the words of Isaiah, Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Now, all of this, it may seem very uh, boring, very simplistic, very uninspiring, so to speak, for you and for me. But for them, this was a huge deal. The congregation waved their palm branches and joined in singing, Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So Psalm 18, 118, was viewed like a messianic psalm and gave the feast a messianic emphasis. And that's why Jesus, remember, was greeted with crowds shouting, Hosanna, which means save now, and wave palm branches at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They viewed him, that is, those who greeted him that way, viewed him as the messianic king that came to deliver, that is, save now Israel in fulfillment of Psalm 118. So they hailed him with this messianic imagery of palm branches for the Feast of Tabernacles. So that same imagery, if you follow it, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, you'll see where redeemed saints worship with palm branches in their hand around the throne of God and the Lamb. So we're going to build on this foundational information as we move through the program here today on Viewpoint, because quite frankly, let's put it uh, very bluntly. Jesus, when he returns as Messiah, the scripture says, is going to tabernacle among men. Now, he came first, tabernacled for three and a half years with the people in Israel. When he comes back, he's going to tabernacle with all those, both Jew and Gentile, who have committed their lives to him as Savior and Lord. What a time that will be. Joy in the camp. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. During the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, it was right there in the middle of the lunar month when the harvest moon was full and and the sky was clear and bright. So the outline of the surrounding Judean hills were clearly visible in the moonlight. Well, against that backdrop, The light of the temple celebration, they say, was absolutely breathtaking. In fact, all night, the elders of the Sanhedrin, the 71 elders of Israel, performed uh, impressive torch dances while the steady yellow flames of the menorah oil lamps flooded the temple and the streets of Jerusalem with brilliant light. Now, remember, the temple was made of this white stone. So you can imagine how the light uh, bounced off of that stone, and it was nothing short of spectacular, and helped them in their celebration uh, that was kind of reminiscent of the descent of the Shekinah glory of God in Solomon's day and looked forward 
prophetically toward the Shekinah in the days of the Messiah. The glory of the Lord filling the place. So you might remember that uh, John, the disciple, recorded it was the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was considered a Sabbath, a Sabbath day, when Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives to teach in the temple. And as the Pharisees came to entrap him, here's what Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Isn't this interesting? What Jesus did was use the light imagery from the Feast of Tabernacles to declare that he was the light of the world and that ultimately there would be no other light. He was the light of Israel, the light of the nations, the Gentiles, a refiner's fire, a burning lamp, the son of righteousness, and so on. So later, that very day, Jesus, as the Messiah, you could say, kind of reinforced that same truth when he healed the blind man. And as he did that, here's what he said. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, who's the light of the world today? Jesus said, as long as I am in the world. Well, he's not in the world today. He ascended back to the Father. So then he turned around and said, until I come again, you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So here's a question that we have. If we're the light of the world, how bright is that light? Is it bright enough? Is it something that people would give glory to God and would able to see the presence of the Lord tabernacling among us uh, through his Holy Spirit or not? Is it pretty dim? That's the question, a rhetorical question. So until Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, comes again, you and I are to be that light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be said, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, Jesus said, but on a candlestick. So it gives light to everyone. So now on the final uh, day, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Sukkot, is a seven-day feast. It begins tonight. And uh, the on the seventh day, the final day, the temple services reach, I guess you could say, a climax. And Jewish tradition held that it was on this day that God declared whether there would be rain for the coming year's crops. On the final day of the feast, the temple water-pouring ritual took on great importance Water was the foremost thought on everyone's mind because in Israel, like in uh, California, for instance, there's very little rain during the year. It only comes in one or two very limited seasons, so it's a very big deal. So they were focusing on both light and water. Light and water. Well, didn't Jesus say that uh, if you would come unto me, I will allow you to drink of the water of life freely? Why did Jesus say that? He said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So not only are we called to wells of water, salvation in Christ, but rivers of living water with the Holy Spirit flooding through our hearts and lives. So, uh, as we look at this matter of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, it is so critically important that without it, we do not understand the second coming of Jesus Christ. We do not understand what Jesus promised the people. We don't get it. So, here on Viewpoint today, we're trying to make it possible for us to, shall we say, get it a little bit more. Now, interestingly, there was another name for Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is the Ingathering, or the Feast of Ingathering, which the Bible often speaks of as the final judgment as a harvest. So you hear a lot of people talk about the harvest or the great harvest. Well, uh, it's not surprising then that the Feast of Tabernacles is tied to Israel's future as well as her past with regard to the harvest. So when Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, sets up his millennial kingdom, he's going to gather the remnant of Israel back to her land. Notice the ingathering, the ingathering, and Here's what the prophet Isaiah said about this. He said, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And the righteous among the Gentiles also will be gathered to the Lord. And the Gentiles will pray in Jerusalem, according to the prophecy of Zechariah. Why? To keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, if you go to Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 12, you will find, he says that when Yeshua comes back, and the time of great ingathering and celebration is there for those who are his followers, that those who will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles will have no rain. And he says, in particular, in particular, if Egypt doesn't come up, they'll have no rain. Now, why focus on Egypt? Well, because Egypt stands in a very tenuous place in the mind and heart of God. First of all, Egypt was used by God to bring hospitality to Abraham and his seed, to Jacob and his seed during famine. So, Egypt is not always associated with the Pharaoh that brought Israel into bondage. Again, Israel, all, excuse me, Egypt also was used 
as an engine of hospitality and God's provision during a time when Jacob uh, in Israel, Canaan, found himself in uh, great famine. And so he sent his sons to Egypt to get food where there was food. And lo and behold, ultimately there was Joseph, his lost son, as the second in command under Pharaoh that had created this situation to save the surrounding people from the famine. So God looks at Egypt as a place of provision for his people. But he also looks at Egypt in another way. And that way is not so good. He looks at Egypt as containing a spirit, particularly during the time of the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, that brought Israel into bondage. And he looks upon Egypt as the spirit of the world. The spirit of Egypt, the spirit of the world. So over 400 times from Genesis to Revelation, you will find the words out of Egypt. It is the most repeated theme, I believe, in the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, out of Egypt. Why is it that God continually called his people out of Egypt? Why is it that Abraham, the Bible said, had to come out of Egypt before Israel ever went into Egypt? Why is it that Moses, who was brought, who was in Egypt as a adopted son of Pharaoh, had to reject the rulership of Pharaoh and the spirit of Egypt, flee to the wilderness uh, for 40 years of testing before God would send him back into Egypt to deliver the children of Israel from the house of bondage that Egypt was then known for because of the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. The Pharaoh who said, that basically he was God and became a type of Satan himself. Then, if you look at the Bible further, you will find then that Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt, but they were 40 years in the wilderness. What was going on during those 40 years? They were being tested in the wilderness. They were being tested dramatically in the wilderness. And as they were being tested in the wilderness, they had to deal with the spirit of Egypt. So guess what they did? They yearned for the spirit of Egypt rather than trusting God. For 40 years, God put up with their playing games with him constantly yearning to go back into Egypt for the leeks, the onions, and garlic, and all the things that they enjoyed there in the spirit of Egypt. God says, look, I'm providing you manna from heaven. It's like angel's food. I'm providing you water out of the rock. I'm Your shoes are not wearing out. I'm providing all of this for you, and you don't trust me. You still want to go back into Egypt. Does that sound familiar, friends? That's America. I'm not saying that America is Egypt in that sense, but America lives in the spirit of Egypt. And that's why I wrote the book, Out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. Some people say 
It's the most powerful book that I've ever written. Out of Egypt. And what that book does is help us to understand the Bible in ways that generally most Christians don't understand, don't get, including your pastors. We are so inculcated with business-as-usual churchianity that we don't see the full connections in the Bible. Not that yours truly sees all the full connections either. Uh, Far from it. But I believe that the Lord revealed this particular connection and ties the book of the Bible together from beginning to end so that we see where Egypt plays this tremendous part. And what we do not want to do is live, walk in the spirit of Egypt. So, God called Abraham, the father of the faith, out of Egypt. Then he called Moses out of Egypt. Then he sent Moses back into Egypt after 40 years of testing to take Israel, his adopted son, out of Egypt. God took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And of these five of the 600,000 men who were taken out of Egypt, that is those 20 years of age and older, of those 600,000, only two were allowed into the promised land. Why? Because all the others walked in the spirit of Egypt and they were not eligible for the promised land. Are you beginning to get the picture here? This is a big deal. This is a much bigger deal than you can possibly imagine. God is looking for our trust, friends. And if we have the hope of the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles, we must come to a place where we resist the spirit of Egypt and walk in the spirit of the living God, trusting him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today is this evening begins the Feast of Tabernacles called Sukkot, also called the Feast of Ingathering. And it is the most joyous feast of all of the Hebrew calendar and will last for seven days. Now, the word, the number seven, as you know, is uh, critical. It's the number of uh, God's perfection and completion, and so the Feast of Tabernacles is a foretelling in that feast of the final, shall we say, joyous 
living out of the presence of God in our lives at the second coming of Christ. When he comes to rule the world in righteousness, when he comes to save us from the spirit of the world, we are supposed to be walking in his spirit until then and not in the spirit of Egypt, which is the spirit of the flesh. Because that which is of the flesh brings corruption, the Bible says. So we don't want to walk in the flesh. We want to walk in the spirit. It's all talking about the same thing about the spirit of Egypt. So 400 times, over 400 times, you find the words out of Egypt or similar words in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's fascinating. Then we find that Jesus, Yeshua himself, had to come out of Egypt. Because as the scripture says in the book of Hosea, out of Egypt have I called my son. So we know Jesus came out of Egypt at somewhere around two years of age as Joseph, his father, fled into Egypt with Mary, his mother, because of the wicked reign of Herod who wanted to destroy all the little boy babies. Remember that? So when Herod was dead... The angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, okay, it's it's safe now to go back into Israel. And instead of going into Jerusalem or Bethlehem, he went to Nazareth to get away from that spirit uh, that was seeking to destroy uh, the Christ child. Then, as if that's not enough, the Bible says that in the end times, God will again call his son out of Egypt, that the spirit of Egypt will once and forever be taken away from God's people. This is a big deal. So I want to make available to you my book, Out of Egypt. Uh, In fact, it was just a day or two ago, someone had received the book Out of Egypt through this special that we've been offering here during September, and called me and said, this book has changed my life. It has opened up the scriptures to me in ways that I, I, I thought should be there, but never understood. When the book first came out, a postal worker purchased a couple of copies, one for himself and one for his father in, in uh, San Francisco which is the incarnation of the spirit of Egypt, that and uh, Las Vegas. And uh, if if you listen to this postal worker talk about his dad, who received that book out of Egypt in San Francisco, he said, my father has read that book seven times. Now, why would a man read a book like that seven times? Because it was revealing to him something that was life-giving and was opening up the scriptures to him in a way that made it all come together. That's why I'm sharing it with you, the book Out of Egypt. And 
right now during the month of September, and we only have a couple of days left here, don't we? During the month of September, all of my books, including that book, are available to you for $10. Just $10. It's an incredible uh, opportunity that we're making available during the month of September and only during the month of September. You must place your order for these books, whatever it is you want, during this month. Now, this is the 29th, and there are only 30 days in September. In other words, today and tomorrow, that's it. The 29th and 30th. So, you can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. You can write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Just make sure that uh, your check and thing is uh, posted not later than September 30th. And list the books that you want, $10 each. Postage and handling, $5 for the first book and $2 for each other book. So it's very simple to calculate. Okay? And write your check to Save America Ministries. Now, you can also go to the website, and that's how most people are doing it. They go to the website, saveus.org, saveus.org, and they uh, order whatever books they're wanting. Just before broadcast, I received a call from just outside San Francisco. A woman says she's been listening to this program at 4 a.m. every morning for a very long period of time. She has been so excited about it that she says, both I and my son want to get all of your books. She said, I don't want to do it via credit card. I don't like that. So may I write a check today and get it in the mail to you? Will that count? I said, yes. She wanted all of the books. All ten. There's no better deal. And it's not that we're just trying to sell books, friends. These books contain messages that are essential for preparing our minds and our hearts, our lives, and that of the people that we love for the coming of Christ. That's what they're about. Every single one of them, in one way or another. So, uh, that's the opportunity that you have, and I urge you to seize the opportunity, and then you might want to get multiple copies of a particular book or something that you can give out to your relatives and friends. That's why we're doing this. We've got to get the message out rapidly. Jesus is coming soon. The Feast of Tabernacles is on the way the most joyous time of all. And we want everybody to be able to participate and experience the joy, but most will not be able to because they will not be ready. Now, so we continue on. The Gentile nations that refuse to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the Millennial Kingdom are not going to receive any rain on their lands. That's what the prophet Zechariah said. And especially 
the nation of Egypt. So we were talking about why Egypt has such a, an unbelievable and unique place in the Bible. It is both wonderful and despicable. It's despicable because the spirit of Egypt, particularly during the period of time of the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and brought the children of Israel into bondage, shifted away from the spirit of hospitality and God's provision to being agents of bondage and Satan's work to lord it over the children of Israel. So God says, Egypt is going to have a special burden. I've used them for good, for a holy purpose, to be my servants to the people of Israel. But then they shifted on their axis. And I despise them for that. However, God says later on among the prophets that there are three people groups that God is going to bring together as one, almost as one in the millennial kingdom. Would you like to know what they are? Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Why will Egypt have that uh, blessing? Because Egypt was used by God and yielded to her holy purpose to provide hospitality and provision to God's people in a desperate time. And God's going to reward them accordingly. Secondly, Assyria. Abraham, the father of the faith, was a Syrian. Not any, not, he wasn't an Israeli. He was a Syrian that came up out of Ur and the Chaldees. So God, because Abraham, the father of the faith, was a Syrian, and the roots of Israel's blessing came out of Syria, Assyria, God is going to also bless Assyria. But until that time, both is both Assyria and Egypt are going to experience some pretty serious judgment. But you know who's going to receive the greater judgment? Israel. The book of Zechariah says that Israel will be judged double for all her sins. Punished double for all her sins. Why? Because to whom much is given, much more is required. So for Israel and the Jewish people to experience the fullness of the Feast of Tabernacles and the joy of the presence of the Holy One of Israel, they're first going to have to recognize that He is the Holy One of Israel, that He is the Messiah. Now, that might be problematic, because they don't. We'll talk more about that when we get back. Stay tuned. This is Viewpoint. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? 
Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Again, today, for those of you who are just turning in, tuning in, we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles called Sukkot, or the Feast of Ingathering, that begins this evening at sundown, continues for seven days. This is the one of the three greatest feasts of Israel because it is the most joyous of all. It is the culmination of all the others. And God wants his people and all who will join or be grafted into the original olive tree of Israel to be part of the joyous tabernacling of Messiah among the people. God demonstrated his presence among the people in the tabernacle that he instructed Moses to build in the wilderness. It was a roving tabernacle. It moved with the people. God's presence was among them. He manifested his presence by the glory cloud and so on. The Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's one of the passages that my mother had us kids memorize, among many others, when we were kids. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You've heard me talk about a particular plaque that we found at uh, one of America's leading plantations called Monmouth there in Natchez, Mississippi. It said, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? So let me repeat that. If you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? Obviously, if you don't feel close to God, you're not experiencing the joy of his presence. Because in his presence, there's fullness of joy. So why is it you're not experiencing the closeness and presence of God? There's a reason. And it doesn't have anything to do with God. It has everything to do with you. That's Israel's problem. Israel can go through all of the feasts of the Lord and do. Or many of them do anyway. Not not most, but many. They can go through all of them their symbols, their rituals, and so on. But if they don't live out the fullness of those, it's all show. 
It's all ritual. It's like going into a church and expecting to have the presence of God in your life after you walk out the door. It doesn't work that way. The presence of God is to be with you every minute of the day. Like the song says, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We used to sing that song, you know. God spoke, Messiah, Jesus, spoke of himself as the light of the world. We've talked about that. As it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, here's what he said. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should show my salvation to the ends of the earth. Columbus quoted that passage in his diaries as a motivation for what he did. So, Messiah, God, the Lord, Yeshua, offers that light to us today. He says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, light, remember, was one significant part of the focus of the Feast of Tabernacles. Water was the other, rain and water. Wells are a a valuable water source. They provide fresh, replenished water, but even they can dry up during a drought. So the most valued water source in Israel were the brooks and the rivers fed by the springs. They were known in the Bible as living waters. So, Jesus said, or the Lord said this in the book of Jeremiah, to illustrate this concerning Israel's rebellion and idolatry. In other words, going through the feast but not understanding them or living them out in their life. He said, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken sisters, that can't hold any water. Then Jesus said, on the feast, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, I believe that that ultimately it was what God intended for the children, for the disciples, the 120 in the upper room after Jesus' resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection, they were waiting. Jesus had told them to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't do anything. Don't try to evangelize. Don't try to go out and do anything. You wait for the promise of the Father. So there they were in the upper room, 120 of them. And all of a sudden, a a mighty wind came blowing through. It was as if it were a mighty wind, and there were cloven tongues as of fire that came on their heads, and something dramatic happened to them. It was like the rivers of living water that came upon them and began to flow through them. They were no longer Christians per se, 
They were empowered Christians. They weren't just claiming to be saved. They were energized, empowered, the dunamis or power of the Holy Spirit, like rivers of living water came surging out of them. And that's what evangelized the world. That's what enabled them to persist against every conceivable odd. And that's why you're saved today, if you are, because of them. So, as we come close to wrapping it up here today on Viewpoint, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in relation to salvation is a much repeated theme in the Old Testament prophets. The Lord said through Isaiah, I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit on your descendants. And the prophet Zechariah prophesied of a future, a glorious day when Israel as a nation would look upon the Messiah whom they had pierced and repent of her rejection of him. And God's spirit then would be poured out upon them And they would enter into the new covenant. And he said, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they appears. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. So the question, obviously, for us today is, do we thirst like that? Do we have a thirst for the spirit of righteousness? Do we have a thirst for the Holy Spirit? Do we have a thirst for living waters? Not just a well of water to give us some essence of life, but rivers of living water to surge through us so that we can be the engines of his grace and mercy to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes and engage in the great celebration as all the peoples of the earth, red and yellow, black and white, all who have received Messiah are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Because in reality, as we did the program yesterday, we discovered that through DNA and over the 6,000 years since Adam and Eve and the creation, the DNA has become so mixed that in essence, everybody is all mixed up anyway. I'm not talking about spiritually mixed up. I'm talking about ethnically mixed up. There's no No place for pride, ethnic pride, and racism, and all of this stuff that we talk about. There's not going to be any place for that in the Feast of Tabernacles. There'd be no joy there. No. It's going to be unbelievable joy. As the prophet, as the apostle Peter said, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never even yet been told. That's what's going to happen. So, Israel is not prepared, and neither are most Gentiles. 
The Jewish people are not prepared. Neither are most Gentiles. Even many who are attending our churches. That's why I wrote the 